Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Andrea Wolper, and in just a moment I'll fill you in on what I've done with Jason Crane. But first, the jazz session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. The theme music is by the Respect Sextet online at respectsextet.com. Dave Vrabel designed the logo. He's online at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. The show is member supported. If you like what you hear, please become a member, which you can do easily at thejazzsession.com slash join. So, where in the world is Jason Crane? Well, he's right here in his Brooklyn apartment, and on this very special episode of The Jazz Session, we're turning the tables. I'll be asking the questions, and Jason will be answering. Welcome, Jason. Thanks for coming on the show. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's very bizarre to be here. <laughs> so, Jason, you and I met sometime earlier this year, I think, on Twitter, and at that time, I'll admit, I didn't know about the jazz session, but you didn't know about me either, so we're even. <laughs> but I started listening, and I found myself really drawn into these inside stories of the various musicians that you interviewed. And as I was listening, I really began to admire your way with an interview and to become curious about the podcast itself and the story behind it and the person behind it and how and why you do what you do. So... Several weeks ago, you were kind enough to invite me on the show, and of course I said yes, but I also said I wanted to interview you, and uh, so let's start with some background. You've been a professional musician, a radio announcer, a reporter, a station manager, a union organizer, and more. So how did the podcast come to be and go back as far as you want? It all started in a little cabin or, or, <laughs> right, right. or wherever. Uh, well, I started interviewing jazz musicians in 2001 uh, on Jazz 90.1, which is a radio station in upstate New York in Rochester, New York. And when I started working there, I had I had done radio work before uh, at other jazz stations in Tucson, and uh, I had done radio work overseas. But I had never – interviewing had never really been a part of that. And when I started at Jazz 90.1, I was hired to be a development director and to do their afternoon drive time show, which is not really a good time for interviews because it's when people are in the car and they most want to just hear music. But there didn't seem to be all that many people interviewing musicians kind of at length. It seemed to be really hard for jazz players to find any place to talk about why they did what they did. And the station manager at that time was not all that keen on the idea of doing interviews. Uh, so when I suggested doing them, he said no. And then about a month later, he left. And for a while, there was no station manager. And then it be I became the station manager. And so as soon as I became the station manager, I approved my idea <laughs> <laughs> to start doing interviews on my show. And, uh, you know, they were almost all phone interviews because... Uh, you know, it was Rochester, and so there were a limited number of people coming through town. Although, because of Eastman, you know, more than you might think. And then almost immediately following my start at uh, the station, the following summer, the Rochester International Jazz Festival started. So we started doing interviews on the phone. Uh, me, mostly just me, but uh, occasionally another one of the DJs would do it. And then during the jazz festival, uh, I started hosting live uh, both interview segments and just kind of like here's what's happening right now downtown in Rochester. I started hosting those live from the Eastman School and other places. 
And it became pretty successful. I mean, I did more than 200 interviews in my three years there. And, you know, some people that everybody would know and then some people nobody had ever heard of, which, you know, has carried over and become the the MO of the jazz session. But anyway, I, I discovered that I really loved it and that um, a lot of the things I listened to a lot of interview shows growing up and then I listened to them as a you know professional radio person. And I tried to be the kind of interviewer I sometimes wished were asking questions of the people that I was listening to, you know, that, um, and I'm not saying anything about whether I've achieved that or not, but I think that over time I was able on the radio to develop the skill of asking questions and getting out of the way and figuring out how to, um, really listen to the answers so that I could ask another question. And then when I left Jazz 90.1, I, uh, there's no way I will go into the incredible, complex and fairly annoying details of my professional and personal life. But it, it, eventually I left Jazz 90.1 after running for city council and our, having our first child uh, born and became a stay-at-home dad. And while I was a stay-at-home dad, I hosted a show on an Air America affiliate. I hosted a progressive talk show. And there were some musicians on it, but it was mostly political people. But I started doing that as a podcast also. And then when I left that station and I was just stay-at-home dad and I had no radio station anymore, podcasting was becoming – well, it actually it had already started to catch on maybe a, a couple years before. But it was becoming much more popular and it was becoming much more low-cost to actually do. The technology to do it was you know, very cheap or free. And so I decided to continue this show, which at the time was called The Jason Crane Show, because uh, that's what the radio show had been called, not by my own choice. Uh, decided to continue it, and I, I did politics like one week, and the next week would be a musician. And, and so there were some, you know, David Binney was on the show and some other, you know, kind of fairly well-known jazz guys. But that became very difficult, I think, to to market in any way because the show had no real identity. And so my friend uh, Jeff Frabel, who's actually the brother of the guy who designed the show's logo, uh, he suggested you should just pick one of these genres and go with it. You know, just either interview political people or talk about music. And I had many more connections in the music world. So I decided to start the jazz session. And I just sent an email to all the people that I had worked with on the radio, the promoters and those kind of folks. And I said, I have no audience. I have no budget. I have yet to actually make one of these, but could I book some of your guests, some of your artists on my show as guests. And uh, the third one was John Abercrombie and he was well enough known, you know, had a new ECM record out and that's a well-known label. So, you know, that started getting kind of spread around on the internet and pretty quickly there was a listener base and it's been close to five years. It'll be five years in February, I guess. And, uh, you know, like a million and a half downloads now, I think, and 300 and something episodes. And it's still, it's still going, which I find slightly amazing and really gratifying. You said something about developing the ability to really listen to the answers and continue the interview based on what you're hearing, in so many words, which is something that I've noticed about you. And I said that to you once. I said that you really listen. And uh, I noticed that with the interviews that you're, you're really responding to what people are telling you. Now, before we started the interview today, you said that you don't prepare. You don't make notes. You don't prepare. Um, I should back up. 
you prepare. I'm sure you prepare. You know the people's music that you're going to interview, but you don't take notes. How do you do? What is your your preparation? How do you do what you do? Sure, it's changed over time. I, I was I was kind of joking. Of course, I I do prepare, but um, but I don't use notes or anything like that. I don't have questions when I go in. Uh, I used to. When I first started, I would take notes. I mean, I would yeah, I would take notes for the interview. Well, actually, when I first started, I was doing it on the radio, and the other person was on the phone, so they couldn't see me. So I could have all the notes I wanted because it didn't it didn't change the amount of eye contact in right. the interview. Uh, they, you know, as long as I said uh huh every once in a while, <laughs> it's exactly the same as if I were you know completely focused on them visually because they couldn't see me most of the time. But then once I had people actually start coming into the studio. I realized that that really wasn't all that effective. And also that taking the notes, that having the notes in front of me was causing to causing me to miss the actual things they were saying mm. because I it was almost like a script. And so I stopped I stopped doing that. It, initially I would write all the questions, I would bring them with me, I would just put them in my pocket, do the interview, and at the end I would take out the piece of paper and look and just say, "Oh, I also wanted to ask you about this." And you know. Mm. Then eventually, I stopped even doing that. And so, I mean, I do do a lot of research before an interview, before most interviews, not all the time. Um, some of that, what determines that is sometimes how well I know the artist, as you said. Uh, you know, if it's an artist I've been listening to for years or someone I know personally, which often happens on the show, it's easier. I still prepare, but I don't I don't need to fill in all the blanks because there aren't as many blanks. But I do a lot of research. I listen to the record, um, you know, multiple times. If, if there is any record and I listen to, you know, recent records. But then I just go in and usually when I step into the room to do the interview, I don't even know what I'm going to ask first. Um, because there's a few, it always takes me a few minutes to set up my stuff. And so in that few minutes, I'm talking to the person right. kind of to get them relaxed and to make it not weird that I'm taking out microphones and cords and all that stuff. And most musicians are used to that, but, um, but they're not used to necessarily holding a microphone and talking. And so during that few minutes, we're kind of talking about whatever we're talking about, and usually the first question will suggest itself. Uh, if it's an interview I'm nervous about, either because I feel like maybe I don't have a good enough handle on the subject or because it's someone, you know, like I interviewed Gerald Wilson last week, and I mean, this is he's 93. He's been there since, just about since the beginning, you know, right. of this music. And when you step into a room with someone like that, you want to be on your game. And so if it's someone I'm nervous about like that, then usually I do have a first question in mind. But I still never have notes. And uh, and I I do sometimes leave and realize, oh, I wish I had asked this. But most of the time, I feel like it helps me be a lot more present during the interview. And as long as I'm listening, I mean, I always say to people, I should be able to interview any person who walks into the room, no matter who they are or what they do in the world. Uh, and... I should just be able to start talking to them and have an interview just as good as one that I've prepared for because the trick is just listening to what they say. I mean, certainly it helps if you know something going in because you can wow them with your insider knowledge, I guess. But, but for me, the real, it's almost like a, it's like a challenge. It's almost more of a, an accomplishment um, to just go in with whatever it is I know and see where we can get to. And it, it works so far. It's worked, I guess. So in a way, it sounds like you're saying it, it, it could be anything. I mean, it, you could interview anybody about anything that you, you could theoretically have a show where you interview people 
and just have these conversations and that this one happens to be about people who are musicians for the most part whose music falls under the umbra of jazz in some way but that's not necessarily at the heart of it yeah Is we that, i think on right? the jazz session we don't talk about the music all that much mm-hmm. i mean um i've never gotten any feedback from anyone saying they wish there was more of that but uh but i sometimes feel like it's almost the thing we don't like we talk about the least on the jazz session is the actual music. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes I'll get to the end of the interview and the artist will say, well, do you want me to talk about the songs? You know, like right. these particular tunes. And sometimes if it seems like, oh yeah, I certainly should have asked you about that. Then I will. But sometimes I say, no, you know, like we, we had a really good interview about your creative process and about who you are and why this record exists and you know, how you came to this place and to be honest, to me, that that's just more interesting. A lot of there are a lot of critics and music writers and you know people who can kind of dissect the music, but there are fewer people who really try to delve into who the people are. Right. Um, and I mean, you know me fairly well, and the I have started to say to people openly, which I didn't usually, I didn't used to say that. I mean, I certainly I work in the jazz world, and there's a lot of jazz that I really love. But I have really broad interests, and a lot of the times when I go out to see music that I really want to hit me emotionally, I go out to see like rock music or pop music or you know music from other genres, hip hop or whatever. And the the thing about the jazz session that grabs me really isn't the music, although to get on the show, period, I have to like your music. I mean that I get so many CDs that I have to triage out the music I don't like so that I can have a nice conversation about it. But once you've passed that threshold, like, oh, yeah, this is a good album. I like it. Maybe I love it. Maybe it really, you know, hits me with a lot of force. Maybe it doesn't. But the people almost always hit me with a lot of force. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really – I just get totally swept up in who they are. And and I agree with you about the thing. It should be that, you know, like the idea that it could be anybody. I've always thought like a cool show would be if you just had a room somewhere, like on a city street, and you just – put up a sign and each week's show is like whoever happened to walk in mm. and, you know, you just have a conversation with them, I, I think would be a blast. And, uh, because it's really, it's about, for me, the thing that's, about, that it's about is the connections with the people and just finding out, I mean, there's just so many beautiful, interesting people in the world. And I happen to just, you know, I've picked this one genre so that I could have some defining characteristic to the show, but it's really the people that, that make it for me. Well, that actually gives me a good segue to bringing up your poetry, which uh, is something that I I definitely wanted to do. Um, You're a poet. Hold on. If we're quiet, I think we can hear everybody turning off the podcast. (laughs) Okay. So it's just you you and me now. (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Listen up, folks. You're a poet, and in my opinion, a very good one. Um, You know, for me what makes something a good poem. And sometimes, I I think you'll appreciate this, sometimes a poem is something that someone sets out to write, and sometimes it's something you stumble across, that somehow, in mere words, illuminates something that's almost beyond words. And I don't know. I printed out some of your poems and brought some of them. I'm not sure if I brought this one, but you just said something about interviewing people, just how interesting people's lives are. 
So there's a, a poem of yours that I saw recently uh, on your website, and uh, maybe you'd like to read it for us. Sure. <laughs> Uh, at some point, this is going to stop being weird. Indulge and I think that, me. That point is when we turn these off. Okay, uh, so this is called Everything is a Poem. The baby on the end train who laughs as her mother tickles her feet. The way the stop-motion animator looks down at her hands, talks about puppets. The little bit of residual foam that floats on top of a hot cup of espresso. The ring of condensation like a holy circle of protection beneath my glass. The young Brooklyn barista beaming as she tells me how smart her sister is. The way my friend rests one slender arm behind her head, smiles across the space between us. The cat putting his front paws on my legs so he can rub his head against my freshly shaved chin. The moment when I step out of the subway station and remember that it's a sunny day in New York City. The part where Stevie's voice jumps an octave and the song goes up a whole step. And I can't feel the ground. Thank you. You're welcome. So, I think the reason that I like that poem is well, there are a couple of reasons. One is that it 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 uh, really resonated for me uh, in a place where there's there's something that's been percolating in my own uh, mind and heart for many years that I hope someday will become something musical but uh, I don't know yet. A similar theme. And what I think this is really about is noticing. Noticing the life in the small details. And that harkens right back to what you were saying about interviewing, listening to what people are saying, noticing the beauty of the, the ring under the glass and, and things like that. Um, oh, hello, Cat. We've yeah. just been joined by... <laughs> this is Jester, I think, judging Jester. by his stomach. I can only tell them apart because one of them is really fat and the other isn't. So these are... I just moved into a new place and these are my roommate's cats, <laughs> although Jester is quickly becoming yours as well and they have oh, both they uh, taken a, a liking to me. Aww. Yeah. And so Jester has like a nice sagging down belly and that's how I can tell who he is. <laughs> but if they're laying down, I can't tell which one is which yet because they look exactly the same as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> But the thing about noticing detail, I always refer to poetry as kind of like my spidey sense. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like the extension of my natural senses. And to me, poetry is what allows me to slow down the world. And, uh, whoop. <laughs> Big <laughs> yeah. cat. Yes, yes, he's not light. Sorry. Uh, no, that's totally fine. It's not your fault. Jester, you're grounded. Uh, poetry is kind of what allows me to, you know, to slow the world down and to really see its constituent parts and the fact it it's not the writing of the poem that lets me do that it's the it's knowing i'm going to write a poem and so to be kind of prepared to find something to write a poem about i have to try to look at the world that way and it does directly apply to interviewing um because the I mean, I really think the trick to interviewing, I mean, I've said this already and I've said it a million times, is just figuring out how to ask something and get out of the way. But get out of the way doesn't mean – what it sometimes means for people is step back and prepare for your next question. And that's not what it means for me. It just means to step back. <laughs> step back, cat. <laughs> step back, Jester. <laughs> You're stepping on our notes. Um, you know, it just means to to step back and be prepared to receive whatever happens next. 
I think that is when I finally figured out how to do that, how to not wait for the next chance for me to talk. It made interviewing a lot better. Well, it made not just interviewing. <laughs> it made my life a lot better. You know, that being able to listen that way is a, it's a, it's a nice way to interact with other people. One of the things that I find frustrating about language, about talking and writing, is that it's linear. Whereas life and what people say is concentric. And so there are many directions that I can go from what we've just been talking right. about. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, the poem that you read, Everything is a Poem, ends with a mention of Stevie, who I know is a hero of yours. Uh -huh. Would yeah. you like to talk a little bit about Stevie? Sure. Um, yeah, Stevie Wonder for me, uh, and not just for me, for a couple others of my friends as well, particularly my friend Josh. Um, Stevie is like the, I don't know, he's kind of like the, kind of my musical touchstone where joy is concerned. Mm. Um, like I have never, I never leave the house without Stevie Wonder on whatever music player is with me when I leave. And it's almost like a security blank. Like I know at any moment I can just put that on and I'll feel good. But beyond that, uh, there's something about like that totally unaffected approach to music making. I mean, there's like, there's no, there's a lot of art in Stevie's music, but there's no, uh, have I actually said Stevie Wonder we're talking about just to make sure people don't think it's like Stevie Ray Vaughan or yes. <laughs> yeah. So Stevie Wonder that I'm talking about, nothing against Good Stevie point. Ray Vaughan, but just Good point. my personal taste. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of art in his music, but there, to my ear, there's no, you know, there's no artifice. There's mm. no, there's nothing fake about it. And I don't actually know that much about him as a person, to be honest. Um, but the person that you hear coming through the records, uh, and the the kind of persona that you hear is is so beautiful, and the music is just so transcendent. I, I mean, I really. It's hard for me to think. There's a, lot, a ton of music that I love and a lot of artists that I love, and, and maybe I, I would disagree with this in 10 minutes. But right now it's hard for me to think of anybody who's kind of as guaranteed to just get, like, get right to the core of me. Um, yeah, and he's popped up in others of my poems before too. Uh, there was a – I can't remember the name of this poem, but there was a particularly emotional thing that happened to me last year and uh, a, good, a good thing. And – and after it, I was just – this was before I moved back to New York. I was just blasting Stevie Wonder in my apartment and dancing around. And um, and that made it into a poem. And there's just – there's so many moments. There's – one of the most popular things I've ever written on my blog is this – on the jasoncrane.org site is this blog post called Joy, mm -hmm. which is about, you know, kind of figuring out my family life and all the stuff, which is – it's not private, but I won't talk about it on the show, but you can go read the post. Um, well, you basically say that in a way – your life is a mess, but yeah, you're but, happy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. And uh, and the the hook to Stevie on that is that that was kind of a a realization I had while listening to him on the subway platform. Uh, he was not on the subway platform. I was listening to my right. MP3 player. Right, would have been very cool if he'd been on the subway platform. But I was listening to that music and you know and kind of dancing around a little bit on the subway platform and just smiling and and realizing how 
how important it is to be able to find a place like that, you know, mm. kind of inside yeah. the rest of life. So. Which is what music can do mm. and does for so many people. And uh, which is why I always think it's funny when people talk about does music matter? It doesn't matter if it matters. It, it, it exists. People will always want to have and to make music. It's yeah. just something people do, human beings do. But this, this is why I said this is concentric because it brings me back to something you touched on earlier that I had wanted to talk to you about. Um, you mentioned that the music that usually really grabs you in a feeling place isn't jazz, tends to be other kinds of music. And you've said to me more than once that a lot of the jazz that you hear doesn't really grab you in that place of of emotion. And yet you go out to hear a lot of jazz, I know that, and you're out all the time. Uh, and you're talking to jazz musicians about the music and you're listening to a lot. You're doing two interviews a week, so you're listening to a lot of jazz. Mm -hmm. So... How do you how do you work that out? How do you navigate that that you need to or choose to or want to listen to so much jazz, but it's not where you're kind of getting your your thrills? Yeah, well, I, so I, I don't know. It's, it, this is a, a tough topic for me that I've only started really talking about, you know, in the last few months. Um, I had talked to some people about it privately because it seemed like, like I started to feel almost guilty that, uh, that a lot of this music I, I just don't, I don't feel moved by. Although often I feel very intellectually stimulated by the stuff right. that I hear, and, um, and it's not to say I never feel moved by jazz. It's not to say that by a long shot. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't still be doing this if I felt that way. But it is to say that I. When I go see live music, the thing that appeals to me often about live music is the the obvious emotional connection the performer has to the music. And I think in kind of in the rock and pop world or in music that's geared toward dancing, mm. that's a lot more present right on the surface because it, sometimes it's almost the only content. It's like a raw projection of emotion. Right. And in jazz, there's so much else going on that sometimes I think it obscures the emotional connection or maybe there isn't an emotional connection. Right. But sometimes I think maybe it's not meant to have one or maybe it's just not doesn't have one for me. I mean, maybe there are other people in the room. Like I'll go see a show where everyone else in the room like jumps to their feet at the end of the thing. And I think, well, I thought it was pretty interesting, pretty cool, but it just didn't grab me that way. It also could be some ignorance on my part. I might not have enough knowledge to process things. But um, I, yeah, I tend to find that when I go to jazz shows, it's a lot more hit or miss for me that and I do go a lot uh partly I go because of what I do and so I feel like well I should know what's going on and I don't go to nearly as many things like I talked to Lawrence Donahue Green from the New York City Jazz Record yesterday and uh not for my show but for another just talking to him and he goes to like four or five shows a night mm. three or four nights a week wow. and I don't do anything like that uh, although I do go out three or four times a week but I usually just go to a show right and go home um I feel like I'm not really answering this question. Uh, part of the reason I'm not answering it is because I don't 
I feel like if I say a lot of jazz just kind of leaves me cold, then it makes it sound like, well, well, then why, how could you possibly, it makes it sound to musicians, like how could you possibly interview us about this music if you don't feel emotionally engaged in it? Mm. My answer would be, well, I've done it 315 times or something so far and 500 and something, including the radio. Um, and sometimes I do feel really emotionally engaged in it, but it comes back to me again and again to that thing about the fact that it's the musicians right. with whom I feel emotionally engaged. Like sometimes I'll talk to someone, well, uh, Ken Filiano, um, your partner, is a perfect example of that, who someone I can talk to and at the end of it, well, I mean, you are a perfect example of it. And I just feel like, wow, that that conversation was such a good use of that time. Like my my life is better because I just talked to mm. that person. And like when I was talking to Gerald Wilson is on my brain because I just did it. When I was talking to him, I started tearing up during the interview because um, my grandfather, when I was growing up, told me a lot of stories about big bands and that was kind of what got me into the music in the first place. And then to talk to a guy and my grandfather's gone now. And so to talk to Gerald Wilson, who was telling all these first person stories, I mean that the, those moments are, are often non-repeatable and they are irreplaceable and mm. they're incredibly precious to me. And I feel the same way. Like, you know, I was thinking about talking to Ben Allison and just about the music we like. And then he was making this really subtle joke throughout the whole interview. And eventually I said something about this joke that he was making and we just laughed. And I mean, you just have these, these just beautiful little moments mm. of connection. And that, um, that to me is what, is what makes it. So I have to like the music, but I often really kind of love the musicians. I mean, I just, I'm so energized by talking to people who have devoted so much energy to deciding to do this crazy thing. And, and that's what makes this show exciting for me and why I keep, why I keep doing it. And then every once in a while, some of the music blows me away too, but that's just less frequent. Well, and sometimes I know from, uh, from following your tweets, that music inspires you to write poetry. Mm -hmm. that often you're at someone's gig and a poem comes out of it. Yeah. Which I think is an opportunity for another poem. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Did um, you have one in mind? Well, let's see. I'm pretty sure... Well, here. Here's a good one. Secret. <laughs> yeah, this was written in a show. Uh, let's see if I can remember whose show this was. I remember who I was with. Um, was that Amy Servini? No, no, this was... Uh, man, I can't... Oh, it's crazy. It was at the 55 bar, but it wasn't yeah. Amy. Um, because I didn't go see... I didn't go see her with this friend. Anyway, this is a... Uh, maybe I'll think of it. This is called Secret. To hide my true identity, I travel from restaurant to club with a series of beautiful women of wildly varying heights. There was a time, not long ago, when even this would have seemed impossible. Even now I'm surprised by our reflection in the windows along the street. Sometimes, in a Christopher Street bar over an improbable cup of tea, you find exactly what you need, or who. And that's mostly a poem about my friend Naomi, who's very beautiful and very tall. And just <laughs> before, I had gone on a date with someone who was also very lovely and extremely short. And, uh, <laughs> you know, like, really noticeably short. And Naomi is quite noticeably tall. So partly that was a poem about being in this improbable place after 
the very, very large changes in my personal life. But 55 Bar, I've written more poems of 55 Bar right. than any other place in New York, yeah. and probably more of them at Amy Servini's shows, oh. than, although this was not <laughs> one of them. But for some reason, when I go see her sing, I, it's, she's like the cure for a dry spell for me for poetry writing. Like, oh, it's time to go see Amy <laughs> sing, because I, I need to write something. But yeah, I love... Uh, I've written a bunch of The Standard, too. Uh, I wrote a couple at Smalls. And it's it's weird, because in some ways, it seems... Uh, it seems like I'm kind of disengaging from the music, but it's actually, to me, it's like taking the music as the raw material and then kind of filtering it through my brain into this expression of where my life is at. All my poetry, as you can tell, just from the two I've already read, almost all my poetry is really narrative. It's very confessional. It's almost all in the first person. And although all poets say, just because it's in the first person doesn't mean it's, you know, Mm -hmm. biographical, autobiographical. Well, almost all of mine is autobiographical. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I try to disguise it, but most of the time it's just about me. And although the poem right above this one on this page is not an example of that, except although it's things I saw. But anyway, um, the when I go see music, it's like this – it's this environment that I'm not otherwise normally in. And people say things on stage or you know, in the kind of banter that's happening in the room before the performers begin or during right. the set breaks. And so I just kind of take all that in. And I, I mean, I've gotten more lines for poems from eavesdropping than probably almost anything else, you know, since I've come to New York. Cause it's just, it's amazing what you hear people say. Oh, yeah. And in a weird, you know, if it might not be amazing in and of itself, but then there's live music playing and you're in this, you know, kind of strange environment of a nightclub or whatever. And when you put all those things together, it just puts you in some mental space that you're not normally in. And then sometimes the doorbell rings. <laughs> I am greatly influenced by wherever I happen to be when I write. Mm. And uh, since I spend a lot of time in jazz clubs, I've written a lot of poems that are also explicitly about jazz. Right. And I've written poems, you know, about Art Pepper and Sun Ra and Henry Grimes and, uh, you know, jazz musicians that I've seen and just poems about the act of playing jazz. Uh, But even more so, I've written poems that are fed by the experience of going to see live music and particularly jazz the way you're describing it reminds me of uh when you see people sketching mm, exactly. or painting yep. sitting in a club and i think of it as exactly the same yeah. thing yeah yeah so one of the things that i wanted to talk to you about in terms of the podcast is and something that i really enjoy is that you interview a wide range of people from legends like Ron Carter and Roger Kellaway to people who are pretty much starting out to people in between at various levels of their careers. I've really enjoyed sometimes hearing people that I know personally, but hearing them talk about themselves and their music in ways that, you know, having conversations with you that I hadn't had with them, that's something that's really special. But in terms of having this range of people, is that something that happened by design, or did it just evolve? Yeah, it was definitely intentional. Um, when I was on the radio at Jazz 90.1, we focused a lot on playing new music. And so it was always important to me to also interview those artists. Um, because, you know, for jazz musicians, for jazz musicians, period, it's hard to get an outlet to talk about what you do. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, generally, you're restricted with very occasional exceptions you're restricted to the pages of jazz publications and websites you know no mainstream uh you know the very 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 occasional like thing in the new york times or the wall street journal or whatever 
and then that your chance to get that profile i mean i'm speaking in generalizations throughout here but your chance to get that profile seems to decrease as your age decreases so if you're a young you know 20 something musician just starting out the chance that anyone's going to talk to you at length about what you're doing and why is almost zero so it was always important to me to talk to those folks. And then, you know, you have to balance that with some people that the listeners have heard of. Mm. Um, you know, like Sonny Rollins has been on this show a couple times. And uh, as you mentioned, Ron Carter, Roger Kellaway, you know, John Abercrombie. I mean, just some some really well-known names, people right. that people have heard of. And, and from the next generation down to, you know, folks like James Carter or Matt Wilson. Or, I mean, people who are, are pretty well exposed, at least in the jazz world. And so I think you need some of those people because, first of all, it, I mean, it helps the ratings, so to speak. I mean, it sure. uh, brings people in and they might listen to other episodes. And then beyond that, I think it helps kind of build a trust with the listenership where, you know, just first of all, if they just look at the list of names, if you go to the jazzsession.com, well, on the left-hand side, it's just this long list of all the guests. And if you look at that and you see it kind of sprinkled throughout with people that you know, it gives you some means of judging, well... You know, is this a show I'm likely to like or not? And then beyond that, I think when you hear an interview with someone whose music you're familiar with, you get a chance to hear how I do what I do in a context you understand. And then maybe you're a little more likely to follow me into musicians that you don't know. Mm. And that all would be supposition, except that people write me all the time to say, I had never heard of so-and-so before. Mm. And I heard the interview and I went and bought the record. And then artists tell me that, oh, yeah, so-and-so bought my record, you know from Tasmania or New Zealand or wherever it is, you know, to, and they said that they heard me on the jazz session. And so, uh, people have told me they've gotten gigs because of the jazz session that, uh, you know, people involved with festivals or other things have heard them and, and called them. So, um, so to me, that kind of like validates that, that idea that you should, you know, I like talking to legends and, uh, although I dislike the word legends actually, cause they're actual real people. They're not mythology. Um, but, uh, they're not rumored to be true. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sonny Rollins actually exists. I've actually seen him in person. Um, but I like talking to those people, the kind of established masters. And, and I also really enjoy talking to, to people who are much younger, although they're very different kinds of interviews, mm. you know, and they're people who are at very different points in their development, not just as musicians, but often as human beings. I mean, I know I was in a very different point in my development as a human being at 22 than I am at 30, 38. And hopefully then I will be at 48 or 58 or 68. So uh, it's, I think it's really fun to get a chance to have that like cross section of not only the jazz world, but kind of the human experience, you know, people who are just entering this professional world and figuring things out. And then people who have been everywhere and seen it all and yet are still finding the inspiration to keep, to keep going. One of the other things that I noticed, I don't know, if this is worth pursuing, but let's throw it out there and see what happens. For me as a listener, I would say that the interviews tend to fall into, very roughly, into one of two camps. One in which the person being interviewed is mostly talking about the music on the CD that's just been released, that's being promoted. And the other where they're really talking about their life in music. And sometimes it extends beyond that. But usually their life in music as to po- as opposed to the details about this particular CD. Is that something that you notice or 
how does that happen? Yeah. Or no, am I off the mark? No, I think you're exactly right. And uh, it's not necessarily intentional. Sometimes it reflects the, <clears throat> excuse me, the connection that happens in the interview. So mm. if, if the person and I aren't really gelling, and it doesn't necessarily mean that we're not getting along, but I mean, if it's just in an interview, you can feel it's almost like a tangible feeling, a mm. moment where it just clicks over and all of a sudden the person is just having a conversation and they're not being interviewed anymore. But that doesn't always happen. You know, in 300 and whatever episodes, there's certainly been a decent number of them where that has never happened. I've never either I've never asked what the right question is or I've missed something they said that was really key and therefore I didn't, you know, elicit from them this story that they could have told. Uh, or some people just aren't very forthcoming either about the more kind of emotional, personal side of their music. Right. And so you end up being kind of confined or maybe staying on the safe space of the actual record. Um, and some people actually are also much more focused on promoting the record than others. Right. You know, for some folks, it's like, oh, yes, as the record is out, and that's why I happen to be on the show, but let's talk about all this other stuff. Um and like I think of the recent example of Wadada Leo Smith, who has a new record out, but what we talked about for most of the interview wasn't that record. We did talk about it a little, but it was this wide ranging interview about the civil rights movement and this these larger pieces he's done which haven't been recorded about that. And mm. then, you know, this is a seventy year old man from Mississippi who's has been there and right. done it and seen it. And so you can't you can't interview someone like that and just talk about the new right. I mean, you just you waste an enormous opportunity if you do that. So, yeah, they definitely do fall into those two camps. And it's funny, too, because sometimes I feel like if I'm not well-prepared enough, that can push the interview in one of those directions. But I'm not sure which one. Hmm. Sometimes I feel like if I if I go in and I feel like I don't think I have a handle on this, that I just start talking about the record and that's what we do. But actually, sometimes if I feel like I don't have a handle on the record, that pushes me the other way. Like if I, if I don't think I could say enough smart things about the record or ask the right penetrating questions then instead I don't talk about the record right. very much um, very very infrequently that's because I haven't had enough time to listen to it four or five times you know sometimes I get it just before and I have to listen yeah. to it once or whatever um, and then sometimes at festivals I don't have it at all you know I just it's whoever happens to be available and I go get them if I can and if I've heard the record that's great and if I haven't then that's whatever it is um, and then yeah sometimes it's you know, I walk into the room with varying levels of confidence. I'm very confident in my skills as an interviewer, but I, I'm not always confident in my ability to get at whatever person it is that's there. Mm. And, um, you know, that can just be like the way the person answers the door or, you know, the body language or, uh, like some of, a lot of my interviews begin with handshakes and end with hugs, which makes me feel very good. Um, but, Sometimes, you know, they begin and end with handshakes and you feel like, oh, I think I, I don't think I did this as well, you know, as I could have done. I don't think I got as far as I could have gotten. Are you looking for the poem that's based on that exact subject? Yeah. Yeah. So there was a, it, it's probably, I think it's okay to say that I went to interview Maria Schneider and uh, who's, I mean, just one of the warmest, nicest people on the face of the earth. And I'd never met her before. Although we've been in the same room a bunch of times because I lived in Rochester and she went to Eastman, not at the same time, but she had, you know, she tended to end up back there. And uh, so I did this interview with her. It was really beautiful and she was great. It was just a really nice interview. And at the end, she went to give me a hug and I shook her hand 
And <laughs> it was just one of those like mis- like just body language miscommunication yeah. things. Or, like I thought she was reaching out her hand to shake my hand, right. and I had been thinking, oh, "I'll give her a hug goodbye." It's and I I hugged the men as well as the women, um, but I ended up shaking her hand, and then I just left because then once you're like just shaking the person's hand, <laughs> right. you're like they can't you then can't go right. in for a hug, you know. So, uh, so I actually wrote a poem about how stupid I felt afterwards, <laughs> you know, because sometimes. Like I really like the fact that it's possible to walk into a room with someone you never know, you've never known, never met. That's I think how we say it in English. You've never met, and to walk out and have them embrace you. I mean, mm-hmm. that's really beautiful. And I think it happens a lot in my interviews because uh, this is somewhat challenging to say without sounding really like an arrogant ass. But I think it happens because I do actually listen. Well, you you strike me as someone who through i see this through your poetry and i see this just as as well as i do know you as someone who wears his heart on the sleeve pretty much <laughs> yes all of my organs i think <laughs> <laughs> my intestines are on my sleeve and everything is right there on my sleeve yeah i mean yeah. no that's very true and i think you're kind of a romantic oh my god <laughs> <laughs> yeah you think <laughs> i think yeah i think you might be right um might be time for a poem Sure. Let's let's please get out of this topic that we're currently oh, on yeah. and get Perf- into a poem. Here it is. Here it is. Which, which poem am I reading? Chainsaw. Okay. Oh, my God. <laughs> You're just a sadist. That's, <laughs> that's great. Uh, thank God I'm never doing this ever again. Uh, okay, so this is a poem called Chainsaw. I'm going to pause for just a second to say, I would read this poem in front of a priest and my mother. I mean, I have no problem reading these poems in front of anybody. It's just very weird in the context of my show to be doing this. Because even though I've talked, like, I've cried on my show talking about my grandfather. And I've, uh, you know, I've obviously, I've said very personal things on this show because I don't have any filter. Um, <laughs> and and anybody who follows me on Twitter, I mean, like, Twitter or my blog or whatever, or if you read my poetry, you do not have to be an, uh, a good analyzer of poetry to figure out what it is I'm writing about or going through. And I've written about my family life on my on my blog. Um, so I, I am just exactly who I seem to be. I mean, I put myself out there just very, very honestly, but there's something to me about the context of this show. I don't, I don't do that as much on this show. In fact, I noticed that I've been talking more recently on the show and it kind of bothers me. Like, I feel like I, there's more of me on the show than there used to be. Mm. Uh, and I've tried to stop even though, even though no one else complains. But this show to me is really about the artist. So it's very weird for me in this context to do something as personal as like, as read these poems about myself because that's exactly not what this show is, although that is what the point of this interview is. This so. very special episode. This very special episode. I need different. to get a drink of water too. Excuse me. Here we go. Chainsaw. I've been in this restaurant four times, twice with imaginary friends, twice by myself. I think the server is lovely and in a million years wouldn't say anything. I told a guy today he was charming. To me, that's like juggling chainsaws, except that given enough time, I could probably learn to keep the blades spinning. A friend said I need a lot of casual sex. She couldn't know that's the one thing I can't take casually. Where does that leave me? Eating Buddha's noodle soup in a restaurant with a lovely server, waiting to catch the next whirling saw before it tears me in two. Now, actually, I don't like that poem. And uh, when I when I put it on my website, I put it with a note that said... Uh, this is this and another poem that went with it that I wrote in the same place. Um, 
which I was just about to name, but I guess that would obviously give away there's only one woman who works there. So uh, anyway, uh, I wrote it in this vegetarian restaurant that I like in Manhattan, and uh, I thought it was kind of tortured. And I don't normally like writing. I do write a lot of poems about my love life, such as it is, and recently as it is. And I wrote when I was married, I wrote a lot of poems about my wife. Um, but there's something about the like the whirling blades and the tearing me in two that's which is not really how i write it feels very kind of forced uh and tortured to me and i also just referred to whether or not i'm having a lot of sex on my own show so (laughs) so there is that uh yeah this is definitely uh, this episode this will be a password protected episode that I i will give i will give the password to no one no, no one will ever hear this this episode of the show. For all of the, all of you who wondered, what is the host of the jazz sessions' sex life like? Now you're getting much more of an insight into that. Yes, I actually received thousands of emails urging as you me to ask you that question. For this yes, program. Yeah. from all the I'm, people I'm, who didn't know that this was I'm happening. Sure. Yeah, but nice segue. Going back, to I dare you, you were... to segue out of that. <laughs> Go for it. I can do it, baby. <laughs> Going back to what you were talking about before I forced you to read that torturous poem, which I happen to think is a good poem. Thank but you very that's much. That's just my opinion. Yeah. So, you know. I don't like this guy's poetry. Not book. worth much. But anyhow, you were talking about how you feel lately like sometimes you hear too much of yourself in the interviews. Mm. And so I was wondering about that too, because. Um, you know, the interviews are in service of the musician and the music who's being interviewed, which means that you do, in a way, have to leave yourself out of it. Now, that's a little complicated for me because I had um, something of a career as a freelance writer, and I did a lot of interviews. And I really came to think that this idea that journalism is objective, it, it, there's no such thing. Um that's a much longer and different conversation. But I don't think the interviewer can leave herself or himself out of it if they really want to engage with their subject. But there's a way you have to do it so that it becomes about the subject and not about the interviewer. Yeah, exactly. So just talk more about that. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I don't, uh, and this is important to me, I don't consider myself a journalist because I'm not reporting on what's happening. I, when people ask me what I do, I say I'm an interviewer. Um, and, and really I, I'm more of an advocate than anything. Like that's why I only talk to people whose music I like because I'm not a critic and it's not my job. I mean, I judge the music before it comes on the show. And if I don't like it, it doesn't get on. Well, that's, it doesn't mean that if you haven't been on my show, I don't like your music. I get more than a thousand records a year and there's a hundred shows. So most of you don't get on. But, uh, but if I don't like the music, it, with, only a couple exceptions ever in the history of the show, and they're obvious when you listen to them. Uh, if I don't like the music, then I don't feel that my I can serve that advocacy role, which is really what I feel like my job is. So, uh, I, so I don't try to leave myself, uh, not out of the interviews, but I don't try to minimize my contribution to the interview because of some sense of objectivity that I feel I have to bring. I'm not objective at all. What I do try to do is not be one of those interview shows where it's mostly the host and the guest barely has a chance to respond. Yeah. You know, where it's 
it's really a talk show and there just happens to occasionally be another person sitting on the other side of the table. Um, my show really, to the best of my ability, is, as you suggest, about the person, the other person. That said, I know that uh, that there are, that there is value to having me saying things sometimes too. I mean, uh, first of all, I ask the questions that cause the person to speak, but then sometimes I can challenge them or give my own opinion or tell some little story that I think illuminates what they're saying in a useful way. And I've also come to realize, particularly during the fundraising campaign for the show, that, that by this time, there are some people who've been listening to this show, you know, for four and a half years. And although there's a much larger percentage of the people who just came on like about two years ago, I think. Um, but in any case, there are people who've been listening to this show a lot and who've now heard me many, many times, who've heard hours and hours of my voice and who don't know me at all. And so who, to them, I am the same, and I'm not putting myself in this category, but I'm the same as like hearing Bob Edwards or Terry Gross or, you know, anybody like that. I mean, just, and I'm just picking NPR people, which I don't even listen to anymore, but because they're people whose names I remember, but you know, people like that, that are just disembodied voices talking to people you would like to be talking right. to. And when people send me comments like that, uh, like about the, how they feel about me in that sense, it really reminds me that actually it is okay that I'm the host of the show and that as much as I try to minimize the amount that I speak, which you can't tell from this interview right now, but as much as I try to minimize the amount that I talk on the show, it is still my show. And the thing that makes it the jazz session is the way I host it. Um, So uh, in one sense, I'm okay with it, but at the same time, I do try, I want as many minutes of the show to be the guests speaking and their music playing as possible. And as, as few of those minutes to be the sound of my voice as is possible within the context of the conversation. You know, what you're saying really is a lot. It just reminds me a lot. Well, you've been a professional musician. You mm-hmm. play or played. And, I mean, that that kind of inner conversation one has with oneself about uh, that, that swing back and forth between I believe in myself enough to be doing this or I wouldn't be doing it, and I'm crap, I'm no good, I suck. And I think, I know as a musician that exists in me a lot, and I know I'm not the only one. I think that is true for a lot of people who who make music. So it it just reminds me of that. But then that also made me think about how, um, back to how you do your interviews, that sense that I get when I hear them, that you're very present which is, to me, the best way to be making music, is to be very, very present. You know, you do your preparation, whatever you do, and then in the moment of actually making music, you're just there. Yeah. And I think that's something that, I don't know if that was a conscious decision to strive for that in terms of, in the interviews, but yeah, that's, absolutely. that's what I get. And it's a conscious decision about how I live my life. Um I said to someone the other day, well, I, I know who it was. I'm just editing out who I said it to. I said to someone the other day uh, that I I pretty much walk around all day just like in love with everybody. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of how I feel about the world and about people. And I am I am just kind of relentlessly, uh, I don't know if positive is the right word, but kind of engaged in this really excited way in the world. And people make me extremely extremely happy and i actually 
I have a I have a lot of confidence in my ability as an interviewer. I um I gave Matthew Shipp a really hard time on this show for a falsely modest statement he made. So I will just say honestly, I th I do think I'm a good interviewer. I've worked really hard at it, and the the opportunity to combine how much how much I love just being around other human beings and how exciting and beautiful they are. The opportunity to combine that with another thing, you know, this kind of like advocacy for an art form that needs more advocacy, um, along with one of my favorite things in the world, which is doing broadcasting in some sort, even though this is a podcast, it is in all other senses, a you know, a radio show, it just doesn't have a radio station. I just, I feel incredibly lucky. And the fact that some people are willing to give me money to do it is, is crazy and, and wonderful. Um, so I, I definitely don't take for granted the fact that I get to uh, – I just said – I interviewed Larry Goldings this morning. I said this line before on the show, I think. Uh, but I was saying to him as I left, as he, he was asking me, he and his wife were asking me questions about the show, and I said that someone had once said to me, you know, you shouldn't get so excited about talking to these musicians. They, you know, put their pants on one leg at a time like anybody else. And I said back to this person, yes, but after they put their pants on, they make some of the most amazing music ever. And then Larry Goldings had this great Will Ferrell line, like something like, after I put my pants on, I make rock and roll hits or something like that. I can't remember what it was. But um, but I am totally cognizant of like just how wonderful it is that a big part of my life is spent with these creative people who do amazing work. And that is what inspires me to get good at interviewing them because I, when I'm in the room, I want to perform at the level that they're performing at um and i yeah, i just i feel incredibly lucky to be doing what i do what i'm doing and um yeah i am proud but mostly just very lucky because it's kind of a crazy thing to do uh to try to make a living interviewing jazz musicians ah i'm reading another poem and probably we're if i'm looking at the clock properly mm -hmm. this is going to be like a seven hour episode of the jazz session so <laughs> yeah so this is a another place that i like to write is on the subway, and this is a poem that comes from a subway ride. It's called Exhale. He's wearing a white Oxford. When his jacket arms pull up, I can see his shirt cuffs are dirty. Now I look closer, frayed ends of his pants, shoes with worn soles and scuffed sides, a small cigarette burn on one lapel, hand under his handleless briefcase. Is he going home after yet another interview? Does he have a wife somewhere in Brooklyn who thinks he's at work? Or was she washed away, too, in the flash flood of changing fortunes? I wait because I know it's coming, and it does. The long exhale, the one he can't control, the air forced out of his body as if his own lungs are trying to mercifully asphyxiate him. For a second, I wonder whether he'll breathe in again. He does. The train passes Chamber Street. What about poetry? Tell us about poetry in your life. So when I was, uh, when I was 18, I got kicked out of the house and uh, I, I had a, I was given a month to find a place to live and a job. And, uh, I didn't have a car. I lived in the country, so there was no chance of being out there. So I had to move into the city and, uh, I found a car and I, a roommate, a friend of mine who just got out of grad school, uh, was wanted to just stay stay out of school for a year and so we got a place together and i worked in a bank and uh, i hated it i was a bank teller and i just detested it i mostly detested it for uh 
socio-political reasons more than for the, actually hating the job itself. Because actually, like talking to people all day, that was fine. But I just disliked the way people were treated based on the amount of money they had. This does not sound like an answer to the question, tell me about poetry, but I promise I'm getting there. So while I was doing this and I was miserable and poor, and now I'm just poor, I'm no longer miserable, but while, back then I was both poor and miserable, and I needed something else to do in my life. And I wasn't, it, I wasn't really playing um, very much. It was before I became a professional musician. Immediately before, in fact, that was the next thing I did. So I started going to this uh, local coffee house that had a... I think it was monthly poetry event. Might have been more. Maybe it was. Maybe it was every week. But there was a showcase once a month or something. I can't remember. Anyway, uh, and I started writing these poems, most of which were humorous poems, which is not what I write anymore. In fact, I almost can't write funny poems, and I wish I could because I really enjoyed doing it. But I've kind of lost the knack. But I just started writing all these mostly funny, and then you know sprinkled with the you know tortured romantic poems, uh, and I. I loved it. I was reading in front of people. I had written poems in high school that were terrible. And actually, looking back at the ones I wrote in this time that I'm talking about, they were also terrible. But they were perfectly terrible for the, or terribly perfect for the environment in which I was. And people just ate it up. They were, they were funny. There were other really funny poets who read at this place a lot, in addition to the, you know, kind of more normal, more usual, what you expect. And where was this? This was in Rochester, New York. And, uh, the place was called Java's. In fact, that's where the Respect Sextet also started, although it was called Java Joe's when I was there, and it was called Java's when they were there. Um, and after I'd done this for a while, I did a showcase, and uh, it you know, it was a, a big success because it was mostly just because uh, I was just telling jokes in the form of poems, prose poems. And then I pretty much stopped writing poetry almost completely, and I, I moved out west. I became a musician. Every once in a while, I would write a poem, but very, very infrequently. And then I moved to Albany a few years ago, and Albany has maybe, like, per capita, the most vibrant poetry scene in the United States. It's unbelievable how many poets are there, how many poetry readings. Almost every night of the week, there's a poetry reading in Albany. And, uh, I mean, it's it it literally would blow the mind of almost any poet from anywhere else in the U.S. I it makes no idea. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. And there's a lot of great poets there, too. I mean, like, you know, really well-known, well-published poets in addition to, you know, all of us in the trenches. It's just – it was just a brilliant place to be a poet. So I went to this open mic, and I had written a couple things. I read them there. The people were super welcoming. And I just kept writing. And within about a year, I had a – I call it a manuscript now after the fact because now it's it's actually a book that someone else published. But I had this collection of poems that I had put together. And I had sorted it like a book and, you know, put a uh, table of contents in it and everything. And I emailed it to a poet that I knew in Rochester and said, would you just take a look at this and see what you think? Uh, and I'd, I'd love any feedback that you have. You know, I've been thinking of maybe submitting this places, but I haven't done it yet. I didn't hear from him for a long time. And it's not uncommon. It's very hard to send people your poetry because it's like the worst thing in the world. It's like, you know, if you see a person's baby and it's hideous and, you you know, what are you going to say? So most people, when you send them the poetry, don't don't respond. But after several months, this guy responded. And what he responded to say was, uh, I really like this book, and I gave it to the guy who published my book. Is that okay? <laughs> and Which is, of course, a somewhat funny way to phrase that, since it was already done. Um, but uh, of course it was okay. And then he 
contacted me like a week later and said Foothills Publishing, which is this 25-year-old independent press um, in upstate New York, uh, he said they want to put this book out. And I emailed him back and I said, it's late at night, but I'm should I be jumping up and yelling or not? Is like, uh, you know, are you serious? And he responded and he said, yes, I'm serious. They're going to put this book out. So the book came out. Wow. And I did a ton of readings all over the place. I mean, mostly, you know, in the Albany area. And then I did some, I did one in Brooklyn and I, I did some in other towns kind of in the Hudson Valley. Um, and it had, it just, it kind of, it entered my life in a way that it hadn't before. But the big difference was that before when I had written poetry, I had never really read very much poetry. And it is not, I hate this statement when it's applied to jazz because I do believe, and you all can come on the show and argue with me, but I do believe it's possible to figure out how to play improvised music without having to learn Charlie Parker solos first, although that might affect the way you do it. But anyway, I don't, I, I believe it's almost impossible to really get a handle on how to write poetry without reading a ton of it. Um, or to really develop a cr your craft as a poet. Oh, I probably disagree with that statement as soon as I say it. But anyway, it helped me. Um, and I just started reading a ton of poetry. And I really, really fell in love with it. And at the same time, during this like two-year period, there was so much going on in my life. I mean, my life was changing radically. And it was one of the ways to help kind of keep myself grounded and to talk about things I couldn't really talk about or or talk about things that I had no one to talk about them with. Uh, I think that sentence got lost somewhere in the middle. But um, it was a way to just put myself down on paper and kind of get a handle on it. I don't keep a journal. It's In many ways, it's too bad I don't because I write things. I publish poems on my website like about things that just happened to people I know who can easily go read them. And more than once, I've wished I hadn't done that. And I've either had to take something down or, you know, I've, it's been too late or whatever. Uh, I just I keep a public online journal in the form of a bunch of poems. But uh, But it's been just – it's been super useful to me. And since I don't play music anymore – uh, which I always lie and say I don't mind, but of course I do. But since I don't play music anymore, it is my main creative outlet. I mean, the jazz session is not creative in the same way. Right. Um, it's it's a more technical endeavor, and so poetry is really, yeah, is really the main thing I do to have some way to talk about what's going on, kind of inside my brain and my heart. And uh, it's just become, it's just become incredibly, incredibly important to my life. I mean, I think it's. It may be the most, the single most important thing I've added to my life over the last few years, just in terms of who I am as a person and, you know, how I move through the world, I think. And if people want to own this book, how can <laughs> they do that? That's a, what a funny question. Uh, they can go to jasoncrane.org and they can even directly go to jasoncrane.org slash store. Uh, and if I remember correctly, it's $16 to buy the book online, uh, which I think, I think the book is $14, and then I charge you 2 bucks to send it to you. You mentioned being a musician and not minding, minding, not playing anymore. So let's let your listeners hear a little bit about that. Yeah. Uh, so I was a musician as my career before I started doing this. Uh, I was a saxophone player, and I played mostly in salsa bands and funk bands. And I played some straight-ahead jazz, too, but it wasn't my main thing. Uh and I loved it. I mean, that was almost the happiest time of my life in terms of defining myself to other people was when people would ask me what I did and I could say I was a saxophone player. Mm. Uh, I always loved being able to say that. And 
Like, I hate it when people's main question about someone is what do they do or what do you do? Because who cares? I mean, that doesn't define you unless it does. Yeah, but you know what? I think that, just as an aside, I think that question is uh, somewhat unfairly maligned because I think it's just a way in. Yeah, People maybe. trying to make contact. Sure. I, I can buy that. You know? I'll, ex- I'll accept that answer. Um, but I still hate it. So, okay. yeah. So, anyway, uh, I would hate, I think part of the reason I always hated it was because I was never doing anything I wanted to be doing. That I can understand. So then when I was, I was super happy about it. I remember the night that I got my first – that I got hired for the first band I played in, which was in Tucson. And I drove home. I had a Ford Festiva. And uh, I drove home you know, in the warm night in Tucson with the windows down, just like screaming out the window of the car as I was so excited. And uh, yeah, so I played for years uh, as my main source of income uh, in, a, in several different places starting in Tucson and uh, ending in Hilton Head where I played in the house band at this funk club. And um, I did that until 2000. And then since then I have played professionally like three times and this is 2011. And it's weird because there's people who know me from a certain phase of my life who knew me as a musician. I mean, that's, that was what defined me. That's who I was. And then there's people who, most people now in my life, who have never heard me play the saxophone. Right. Um, and so for years I said, as almost all musicians ask, are you a musician when I interview them? And I always say, oh, I used to be. Which always, I hate saying that because it's, it's kind of embarrassing when you say to a musician who is still a musician that mm-hmm. you used to be one. Because it just, everything about it sounds to me like... I couldn't hack it or whatever. I just I, I hate saying it, but I say it because it's better than saying no, I'm not. But people always ask me. I've been asked this so many times. I'm I'm not sure why, but people always ask me, "Do you mind that you don't play, or do you miss it, or whatever?" Yeah. And I always used to say, "No, I, I don't miss it." And I would say, you know, I had to triage something out of my life, and I had kids, and you know, the radio, and political career, and blah blah blah. So something had to go, and it was music. But that's really a lie. Um, I do miss it. I miss it terribly. And, uh, you know, music I mean, is so central to my life. And that act of performing in front of people, like that's why I like reading poetry in front of people. As much as I like writing it, I like love reading it too. Because um, it's just nothing like standing up in front of people and connecting with them immediately in that way. Like I like public speaking for that reason too. But yeah, I definitely miss it. Um, the thing is, I'm not sure the main thing I would want to be is a saxophone player. I mean... Uh, like I've always had much more of an affinity to this like kind of singer songwriter world or whatever, um, but yeah, I definitely miss it. I, I, however, I don't really see it becoming a regular part of my life again anytime soon, especially because of where I live. I mean, in some ways, it's New York, so you would think, well, there's a million opportunities to play. But I mean, if you were going to try to start out again as someone who hasn't played in years, I'm not sure this would be the place to do it. Um, but even if it were the place to do it, I'm not sure I will do it again anytime soon, just because I'm. I'm trying to figure out, to focus on a few bits of my life and get them all moving in one direction. Right. But I hope to play again someday um, because I really did get a a great amount of joy out of it. I wish I hadn't gone to school for it. That was a huge mistake. But uh, – and and I dropped out of college and – well, I didn't drop out. I was kind of dropped out. Um, But – but that almost got me out of music completely. And then I ended up becoming a musician, you know, for my living. Um, so I wish I had learned to think about it differently earlier on. And I'd had more kind of like a sense of a career and that kind of thing. 
um, which I never really did. I just kind of drifted and, you know, followed whatever work happened to pop up. Um, but I really enjoyed it. I had a great time and it was a big part of my life for a long time. You have some uh, poetry readings coming up? I have only one that's actually on the books right now, which is uh, October 30th. Uh, so that's a couple weeks as people are listening to this show. And that's uh, in Voorheesville, which is a small town outside of New York, but or uh, Albany, New York. It's this tiny town that's packed to the gills with poets. It's so packed that in the local tavern in Voorheesville, there's a whole section on one side that's called the Poets' Corner, where like when the, all the poets walk into this place to sit down and eat, that they, they have their own table. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, they have a, a poet laureate of this tavern. You know, every year there's a competition or whatever. It's insane. Uh, so anyway, yeah, I'm doing a reading there. They have a monthly reading called the Sunday Four, and uh, where there's one featured reader, but it's hosted by these four friends who are poets. And that's been booked for like a year, uh, you know, because obviously it's nowhere near <laughs> where I live now. Uh, but I'm really excited to go back and see everybody. And then uh, I think that sometime, you know, before 2011 ends, I'll I'll probably do at least one reading in Brooklyn at a, a cafe that's pretty close to my house. Um, and maybe one other at a uh, bookstore. And then there's a couple series. I've only just started trying to get out reading again. Um, I really, I had taken actually even a break from writing for a few months, uh, and I've delved back into that pretty seriously now. And now I'm trying to, I've kind of got my enough of the rest of my life sorted out that I feel like I can focus on getting some readings booked. So yeah, I'm hoping uh, in addition to this October 30th thing in Voorheesville that uh, over the next few months, I'll do a bunch of New York area readings and hopefully with some of my friends from other places that I'm, I've asked to come in and, and read with me. So I'm looking forward to it. I hope to get back out there again. I was wondering in terms of the jazz session, mm -hmm. any, any surprises? I'm sure there must've been surprises. Anything you can think of that you'd like to share with us? Yeah. I don't know how many surprises there have actually been on the show. I mean, in, you know, Somebody says it's like it's not the kind of show that leads to an expose, you know, where someone suddenly says, I think I think I should tell you that I actually didn't play any of those solos on any of my records. <laughs> it, it was a ghost soloist who came in and did it. Um, yeah. See, now that never occurred to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there hasn't been anything like that. Of course. Well, the thing that's been surprising to me, I, I mean, really, the thing that's been surprising to me is that it continues to exist. It really is a surprise. It partly is a surprise because of the nature of my own life. Uh, anyone who looks at my resume and as soon as they stop laughing starts thinking like this, like that I must have a severe drug problem or something because it's my resume is just like a long, long list of short dates of things that I've done. And it's, well, I think I'm basically unhirable at this point, uh, which is why I have to make these things succeed because no, I, no one will hire me to do anything because it looks like I don't stay with anything, which is, uh, I mean, obviously true on the face of it. But the reason that I tend to not do that is because I get bored really, really, really quickly. And so I move around a lot and I'm constantly trying to kind of challenge myself and find new things to do. And I'm, I certainly make a lot of dumb decisions based on that, but I try to stay not bored. Uh, so the jazz session, it's been going for almost five years. I mean, I, I have now interviewed more than 500 jazz musicians and, you know, 300 and something of them for this show. That's a lot of times to do the same thing over and over again. And that's a, for me, that's an incredible number of times to do the same thing over and over again. So the fact that I've been able to kind of push through it, I took a six month break at one point uh, when I was sick and, uh, 
I, I had to stop doing the show for a little while. But other than that, I have just kept doing it. And, uh, it, it surprises me every week when there's two more shows. And actually for several months, there were three shows every week. And, uh, the, and I, I think that's great. I'm always happy that it keeps going. And actually, one thing that has been a little surprising is the fact that I don't have to reach out to book people. Um, I really thought that a lot of my time on the jazz session would be spent hunting down guests. And actually, I can't book all the guests who asked to be on the show uh, by a long shot. So there have been times, and I've stopped doing this now, but there have been times when the jazz session has been booked months out. Um, I don't do that now because I actually live in a city where it's possible to see a lot of these things and I try to make it more timely. But that's been surprising too. And then I guess the greatest surprise is the one I already mentioned, which is how people react to it. Hmm. Um, you know, people write me things that are so beautiful and sweet and, uh, and just generous and unexpected. Um, and I try, I mean, I respond to everybody who writes me that way or, or almost anyway, I try to respond, but, uh, but I, there's no way I can convey in my response just what it means to have someone tell you that the thing, the main thing you're doing with your life is important to their lives. I mean, that's incredibly rewarding. And, uh, and it's a, I don't think people realize the enormity of that gift when they write, you know, some note like that. So maybe that's been the biggest surprise. It's just the way people have connected with it. Um, given that, you know, it's a niche. It's a weird little niche music and, you know, I interview people no one's ever heard of and they still, people still really respond to it. So that's been a really nice surprise. Well, it's one of those people no one's ever heard of. <laughs> Thank you. You're for welcome. Being with us on this very special episode of the jazz session. It's my pleasure. Well, that's a lie. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's my extreme discomfort, but it's been, uh, it's been a lot of fun and I, I really, I really do thank you sincerely for wanting to interview me on the show and uh, and for doing it in such a thoughtful way. It's been great to have the tables turned, so to speak. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Andrea. Bye. Bye. Bye.